While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. He said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Every year on Good Friday, we're reminded that no one of the gospel writers has all seven of Jesus' last words. In fact, if you want to track down the seven last words, you have to read the ending of all four gospels. It's also important that if you want to put together the happenings of that first Sunday after the crucifixion of Jesus, you need to look at all four Gospels. And when you do, this is what you find about that first Sunday. Just before daybreak, when it was still dark, the women who had gone out the night before, after the sun had set and the Sabbath was ended, had bought spices to appropriately anoint the dead body of Jesus. As they walked to the tomb early that morning, still dark, they wondered, how will we ever roll away that big stone from the mouth of the tomb? But when they arrived, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, and when they peered inside, there was a young man, dressed in startling white, who said to them, I know who you're looking for, Jesus of Nazareth. He is not here. He has been raised. The women went to the room where the disciples were, the same room where they had eaten Passover with Jesus on Thursday night. The doors locked for fear of the authorities who had brought Jesus himself to trial. The women told what they had seen. Two of them hurried to the tomb. Peter, and according to the Gospel of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John. They looked inside. John saw the grave clothes, but not the body of Jesus. And the two men left. Luke picks up the story at that point. He says that same day, two of them started walking home to Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, we know there were thousands of pilgrims who came to Jerusalem every year for Passover. And that Sunday, when the Jewish Sabbath is over and now the, the fear of darkness and those who lurked in the darkness had gone, people were streaming out of the city and along every road. And these two, walking seven miles home, are sort of kicking their feet in the dirt and saying, We thought he was the one. We thought he was the one, the one we'd been waiting for. And suddenly, they were joined by a third who said to them, What are you talking about? Are you the only one, they said, who doesn't know what's been going on in Jerusalem this week? And he began to explain to them the scriptures. You see, the big problem was the Messiah was supposed to ride the black stallion. 
the Messiah was supposed to come riding into the city and chase out the Romans or any other oppressor and bring shalom to the whole world. Jesus had been killed, was really dead, was buried in a cave in the side of a hill. He continued to explain the scriptures to them. It was now late in the afternoon. It was getting dark, not safe for people to be out on the roads after dark. They invited him to come in and have the evening meal with them. At first he said no, he thought he would go on. They insisted that he come in and eat. And then they gave him the privilege of saying the blessing, breaking the bread. And when he did, they recognized him. It was the Lord. And then he was gone. He was gone, so they jumped up and said, We have to go tell the disciples. And they ran through the darkness seven miles, pounded on the door in Jerusalem. Door was open, they were allowed in, door relocked, and as they're telling what's happened to them, suddenly there was Jesus. There he was. And John says, He said to them, Shalom. And Luke says, He said to them, Shalom. Let it all be well with you. Let there be peace with you. And then as in John's gospel, so here in Luke, look at my hands, look at my feet. Do not be disbelieving. Again, he uses the same word John used last week. Apistos, pistos. Pistos is believing. Apistos is disbelieving. Don't be disbelieving. Be believing. It literally says in Greek, do you have anything edible here? Well, we got a little bit of broiled fish left over. He took it and ate it right in front of them. Okay, what can we learn from Luke's story here? Number one, Dr. Fred Craddock says, they thought they were seeing the dead. In fact, they were seeing the living. Most Christians I know still follow the Greek idea that there are spirits wisping around in space and when a baby is born one of these spirits affixes itself to this child then when the person dies the spirit flits away again that's the Greek idea it's not the Jewish idea it's not the authentic Christian idea the Jewish belief and the Christian belief is that when you're born you are one being body heart mind soul you are one being and when you die it all dies it all dies. And the only hope is that the God of grace and glory will raise you from the dead. That the God of grace and glory will raise you from the dead. Paul went into great lengths to say, but if we have a physical body, we will also have a spiritual one. If there was a physical body, there's also a spiritual body. It will be different, but it will be the same. Jesus could now appear in a locked room. He could disappear from a table in Emmaus. But he also could eat fish. He could invite the disciples to touch him if need be in order to move from disbelieving to believing. Our belief in the resurrection is that it it's right when we have the ashes affixed to our foreheads on Ash Wednesday and we're reminded from dust you came to dust you shall return. But we also believe that this God of grace and glory does in fact bring to life a resurrected body 
known and knowing. Known and knowing. Last fall, Gail and I were trying to plan our vacation for this year. And I'd bought a new book at one of the local bookstores written just last year about things to see and do in France. And one of the places we decided to go was Dijon. Uh, Dijon is in the part of France known as Burgundy. It's a very large territory and has been a very prosperous part of the country for a long time. And this travel guide said, when you get to Dijon, be sure you go to the Museum of Fine Arts. They have a few outstanding paintings, a couple of Saisons, a couple of Matisse. But the most spectacular thing in this museum, two tombs. Two tombs for two of the most powerful dukes who ever ruled over Burgundy. Gail and I went to the museum. It has four floors, this ancient, magnificent building. And we went room by room and floor by floor and finally came to the room with the tombs. They are spectacular. They go back, the older one, more than 600 years. Name, Philip the Bold. Wouldn't you like to be called Philip the Bold? That's a wonderful name, Philip the Bold. He ruled Burgundy with all of these thousands of acres of grapes and all the wine they produced for 41 years. He was Philip the Bold. Then he died. And his son came to power, John the Fearless. Isn't that a good name? John the Fearless took over. And he ruled for 15 years, and then he was assassinated. And the whole territory was thrown into grieving. He became an instant martyr, you know, in the way he was killed. And so here in this room, these two magnificent tombs. Now, I've seen other beautiful tombs. We've been in Vienna, Austria, for example, where Maria of Habsburg's tomb is, and it's magnificent itself. But these two are really beautiful. As Gail and I stood there and looked at them, lined up end to end in this room, when you look at Philip the Bold, it's very similar to his son John the Fearless, except around the base of John the Fearless's tomb, there are little alabaster figures about 15 inches tall. And as I walked all the way around, I noticed that it looked almost like a first grade child who's lost a tooth here and a tooth there. Some of those little figures were missing. My guidebook didn't say anything about any being missing, and nothing that we saw in the room said anything about anything being missing, but it looked as if they were missing. We saw the two tombs, spent some time there, moved on. Last week at night, I was reading through all the newspapers that had caught up all the magazines, and here was an article in the Wall Street Journal, an art critic saying, you need to go to the Metropolitan Museum and see the nine alabaster figures from the tomb of John the Fearless in Dijon, France. Now, they're just on loan. They will go back to Dijon. But they're on loan right now in New York City. And so I started reading what this art critic had to say. And what she said was, look at these little 15-inch figures. You will find that every one of them is different. She said, I've been to Dijon. I've seen them all, and they're all different. This artist has depicted 
as many different people in the Burgundy area of France as possible. One is a bishop. One is a figure who has the, the back of the coat pulled up over the face. But everyone is a picture of grief. Of grief. A farm worker. A grape picker. A wealthy businessman. A woman. A mother. A grandmother. All these figures and all grieving the death of John the Fearless. Well... That was 600 years ago. And we still grieve, do we not? When we lose people we love, we grieve. Jesus said, it's very emphatic here, ego autos, he says, ego autos, look, it is I myself. Look. The one whom you saw crucified Friday is alive with you on Sunday night. Number two, as he had interpreted the scriptures to the two on the way to Emmaus, he now does the same with his disciples in that room, trying to convince them that it's okay to honor, stand in awe of, worship a crucified Messiah. That in fact, Israel had been a suffering servant of God. Israel had been that suffering servant of God who revealed God's face, God's will, God's purposes to all who are willing to look. And now that suffering servant nation had produced a person, God's own son, Jesus of Nazareth, who got it right from the start all the way to the very end. It was okay to worship a suffering servant. Dr. Stephanie Paulsell is a professor, Harvard Divinity School. She has recently written that when she was a girl, she loved to ride her bicycle, and after school, nothing was more fun than to ride her bike to meet her dad coming home from work. And one afternoon, when she was still a girl, riding her bike to meet her dad coming home from work, she saw him with a big cardboard box. And she said, Oh, what do you have? And he said, treasure, a treasure. And when they got home, he put it on the table and took off the top so that she and her mother could see. And it was filled with old papers. Papers, Stephanie said. And I thought my dad had finally lost his mind. But in fact, she said, these papers were written by his best friend who had decided God had called him to be a Roman Catholic priest. He had become a missionary to Papua New Guinea. For years and years, these two friends had kept in touch. And after all these years, her father's good friend had asked permission to start a new monastery in the United States of America, and that permission had been granted. He had arrived in the United States. He had come to see his old friend that day and had told him that he wanted to go into this new monastery with nothing from the past. What about all your papers, all the sermons? I'm leaving them all behind, the man had said. And Stephanie's father asked if he could have them. And that's what was in the box. All these accumulated papers from the years in Papua New Guinea. Stephanie is a theology professor today because you read what was in the box. And what was in the box written by this Catholic priest was 
I hunger to know all that it means to be truly human all the way in and all the way down and I hunger to have more time to practice the presence of Christ I need to spend more time practicing the presence of Christ if I ever get that right I will know how to treat every person I meet number three Jesus says this was done for you to be eyewitnesses to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to all the nations. It literally says to the ethnics. Remember Greeks called everybody else barbarians. Jews called everybody else Gentiles or ethnics. You look at me Watch me eat this fish, Jesus said. I want you to be eyewitnesses to go to all the ethnics proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins. You football fans will know the name James Brown. There's more than one. The one I'm going to talk about in a few moments here is the one who anchored Super Bowl coverage for CBS this year. James Brown has written recently about his growing up years. He had a mother and father who worked hard to be sure their four kids had a good education. James said, I remember my father often working two jobs, sometimes three. He drove a taxi. He worked for the postal department. Sometimes he worked for a rental car agency trying to be sure his four kids got an education. He said, football wasn't really my game. Basketball was my game. And I played on a good enough high school team that I was invited to come and play for Harvard University. Now, he said, Harvard isn't known for being a great basketball power, but my mother and father thought this was the greatest thing in the world, that I could go to Harvard and play basketball while I studied. So he said, I got my degree from Harvard. I was a starter on the team, and I got to play a brief time in the NBA, and then they decided I wasn't really as good as the rest of them and sent me packing. I went home to my mother and dad, and I sat around and, and grieved for two weeks. If I'm not a basketball player, who am I? And they convinced me I was not a basketball player. I was something else. I had more to contribute. He got a job with Xerox and moved up pretty quickly, became a sales manager. And he said with Xerox... I finally realized, for me, I'd missed a turn in the road. My mother and father took the four of us to church every Sunday. Every Sunday. Somehow, I'd made a wrong turn. I was in a world now where I felt I had to step on others if I was going to do well. I had to take advantage of others, I felt, if I was going to do well. I'd made a lot of wrong decisions. And one night I was driving home from a sales meeting and I had this strong urge to pull the car off the side of the road, turn off the engine and all the lights, and be quiet in the dark. That's what I did. And after sitting there in the dark for a few minutes, I found myself saying, Oh God, I made a wrong turn. I made a wrong turn. This is not what you sent me to do, and this is not the way you taught me to behave. Help me. Help me. 
If you will help me find where I made the wrong turn, I promise to make the right turn. And my life changed. I tell you, by the time I got home, my life was different. And it's been different ever since, he said. The whole world needs to hear that. You've made a wrong turn. God will take you back and say, look, let's do it this way. Turn, let's do it this way. Number four. So Jesus said, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until you've been clothed with power from on high. Those of you who've been in Bible studies with me know that I've told you Luke in his gospel and Luke in the book of Acts. He wrote both of those, as you recall. He uses this word dunamis a lot. He loves it. The noun form we have in English is dynamite, dynamo, dynamic. It means power. And in the verb form it means to be able. To be able. If God has called you to be eyewitnesses, he will enable you. If God has called you to sing, he will enable you. If God has called you to teach, he will enable you. He will enable you if you're doing what you were called to do. One of my favorite Methodist preachers, Dr. Brian Bogknight. Brian was a part of our Pastors of Bigger Churches group for 30 years. The very same week that I was appointed to this church and arrived, uh, he was appointed to... Uh, Christ United Methodist Church in Bethel Park, Pennsylvania. His predecessor was elected a bishop. Mine had been elected a bishop. He and I followed bishops. Uh, he pastored that church for almost 30 years. He's a little bit older than I am, and, and he retired just a couple of years ago. Every once in a while, I see something that he's written, and, and a few weeks ago, I saw something else. His son, married son with children, invited Brian and his wife to move on to a little farm where they live in Pennsylvania said, uh, we can have two houses side by side, live together on this little farm. Brian, having lived in the city many years, said, maybe that'd be good. His wife thought that'd be good. And so they, they bought this, this house. He said, the houses are 75 feet apart. Two separate houses on this little farm in Pennsylvania. But the greatest thing, of course, he said, is the grandchildren are so close. Two little boys, seven, three. And I said, these little boys have discovered that their grandmother almost always has some good snack in the house. She will corn slice apples. She has a banana hidden somewhere. She has a cup of berries. And so they'll be playing out in the yard, and suddenly one of them remembers, there's a snack at grandmother's house, and they come running. And Brian said, I can see them. And, of course, the seven-year-old always outruns the three-year-old. And he comes in the house, and just as the three-year-old's about to go in, the screen door closes. And he's not tall enough to reach the handle. And he said, the bigger one's inside, and the little one's outside. I can see him. He's stretching as high as he can stretch, cannot reach the handle. The church, he said, knows the goodies inside. We know about life. We know about life abundant. We know about life everlasting. But will we ever go and open the door?